Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing Buddhist chanting in the Pali language. This is part of our group learning program that we've been doing for about the last three months, where on Sundays we do a full Dhamma talk and teachings from the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. We're in chapter 12 this week, which is identifying attachments, cultivating non-clinging, and analysis of the mind. On Wednesdays, we practice breathing mindfulness meditation, loving-kindness meditation, and Pali chanting, and we rotate those three throughout our schedule. So today is all about practicing Buddhist chanting in Pali. But since we just had our talk on Sunday about chapter 12 and there's students that are joining on Sunday and Wednesday, I would like to give time for all of you to ask any questions that may not have gotten answered on Sunday or any residual questions that in your reading over the last few days or as you thought about the talk that we did on Sunday, anything that comes to mind that you might be having questions on or you need clarification on or you want to talk further about identifying attachments, we can do that right here before we actually get started with the chanting. And not only this chapter 12, but if there's anything in your entire life practice, whether it's meditation, whether it's talking about enlightenment and what that is in the various stages, whether it's talking about the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path, the Middle Way, the Five Precepts, the Three Poisons, the natural law of gamma, what is merit, any of these topics that we've been covering in this program, I would just like to invite you to ask any questions to help further your practice and clarify anything that it is that you're thinking about. And if there's anything that's going on in your life, would like to understand how to actually apply these teachings to any given situation, you're welcome to discuss that as part of your question as well and try to get some help in ensuring and confirming that you're applying these teachings in any given situation in a way that would produce wholesome results. So with that said, let me turn things over to our moderator, Max, for any questions that he has or anybody that is in our Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom platforms that are sending in questions through comments or in Zoom, you can raise your hand and ask your question directly. Hi, David. So on Sunday, we talked about how there's actually no such thing as a good attachment and how that when we experience discontentedness, this is like the warning lights going off on the dashboard to tell us that something's wrong. 
Now, as we learn and investigate these teachings, that can be very invigorating for the mind as we start to see progress and start to see that we're becoming more peaceful, calm. This can potentially sometimes lead to new attachments if we're not being careful. I'm interested to know what advice you would have specifically for anyone who may find themselves becoming attached to their teacher, the teachings themselves, or the community that they're part of. Yeah, so this is kind of maybe encapsulated in a way of saying maybe attached to progress on this path, right? Because that's something that I've been hearing in some of the personal discussions that I've been having with students. Some of the questions that have been coming to me is now that people have been maybe studying with me for six months or a year or two years or what have you, people are actually making progress and they can really see the condition of their mind improving and they're starting to see some of these fetters fall away and they're actively working to eliminate these fetters and they can see the condition of their mind improving and oftentimes the mind starts having craving desire attachment this mental longing with a strong eagerness for progress or wanting to know where am i on this path have i gotten to the jhanas yet have i gotten to the first stage of enlightenment am i in the second stage of enlightenment is enlightenment imminent you know where is enlightenment coming so what's important for everyone to understand is that these jhanas that the buddha describes and helps us to understand when we've reached those jhanas and how we're moving through those jhanas And the Buddha provides guidance on how to move through these four stages of enlightenment based on the 10 fetters. It's important to understand that these are all for personal development purposes, that it really helps you to plot your course and kind of know what to be working on at any given time and what to be looking towards for future improvement and future development. If you're finding yourself constantly thinking about where you are on the path, whether you're enlightened or not, just being kind of obsessed or even a minor longing or strong eagerness to understand where you are on the path, that itself is a craving, desire, attachment that needs to be eliminated because that's the mind trying to compare and measure. Where am I? Where am I? Or sometimes trying to compare and measure to other people and say, okay, am I more enlightened than they are? Do I know more about these teachings than they do? This is the ego, right? So what you've got to move to is get to a point where you understand this is a life practice. This is an entire life practice. Even if you figured out in some way that right now you're actually enlightened, okay, what's next? Do you go out and tell all your friends and your family? No, because that means you're not enlightened because there's still ego there. There's still pride, right? Does it mean if you were enlightened right now that you would stop meditating? No, right? So if you determine that you were enlightened, then nothing changes anyway because you're still going to be practicing this Eightfold Path, which includes meditation and everything else anyway. The best thing to do is to look at it as a life practice, that it's a dedicated, consistent practice that's going to have gradual progress and improvement along this path, that you're never going to stop learning and practicing the teachings. Because as soon as the mind thinks that it's enlightened, there's a tendency for the arrogance to come in, 
which means if there's arrogance and ego, then you're not enlightened. Or if you think you're enlightened, then there's a tendency for the mind to potentially get sluggish and kind of sit back and really not have energy or be very active, attentive or alert with vigor. And if your mind becomes sluggish, once again, you're not enlightened. So what I feel a wise practitioner would do is never actually consider themselves enlightened. Even when you know that you haven't experienced discontentedness for a really long time, I'm talking like a year or two. And even if you've been actively working on this path and you know without a shadow of a doubt you've eliminated all the fetters, there's just nothing left there, then there's no benefit to actually self-declaring that you're enlightened because the mind's going to have a tendency to either become arrogant or sluggish. It's better to instead just to be pleased with a smile and have wisdom that, wow, this is a really great mental state that the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. I don't need to go run off and tell anybody about that because if you did, again, there would be ego and pride, so that means you're not enlightened. Just understand that you no longer experience discontentedness. You have this wisdom that you've now progressed on this path. You will never, ever forget the wisdom that it took for you to attain enlightenment. Not only is the mental state of enlightenment itself permanent, but what it took for you to go from unenlightened to enlightened, you will never, ever forget that. That's one of the reasons why Gautama Buddha encouraged us to speak from memory, to not try to kind of have a prepared speech for a Dhamma talk, but instead to pull from your experience and pull from your memory because that would essentially strengthen your wisdom. And by not declaring or even quietly declaring in your own mind that you're enlightened, that means that essentially this multiple year path that you were on to acquire more and more and more wisdom, it just continues. So you're just going to continue to acquire more and more and more and more wisdom where you're going to continue to read books. You're going to continue to listen to Dhamma talks. You're going to continue to understand the mind and the Buddhist teachings. But you can also now acquire wisdom in other fields. Because with an enlightened mind that no longer experiences discontentedness, that has concentration, focus, deep memory, and clarity of thought, if you decided you wanted to be a rocket scientist, you would be really well prepared with an enlightened mind to become a rocket scientist, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or some kind of boss, or some kind of community leader, or like I've mentioned before, I've met taxi drivers that are enlightened and they are just the most pleasant, peaceful, enjoyable taxi driver you've ever probably been in the taxi with. So to me, the way I think about enlightenment is it's almost like preparation for the rest of your life because your life before enlightenment, you struggled. You have a lot of challenges. There's a good amount of misery that we experience in the unenlightened state. A lot of discontentedness that contributes to that misery. But as we sort all that out and the discontentedness becomes less and less and less and we move into this enlightened mental state, at that point, you've kind of prepared yourself for the rest of your life 
of what other things are you going to get into? What other wisdom are you interested to acquire? You've acquired this profound wisdom around the Buddhist teachings and how to attain enlightenment, but now you can actually dive into any number of other areas of life and just really excel and be successful. Because an enlightened person no longer has shyness, so that means you can talk to anybody, you can try anything, you no longer have fear, so you're not going to feel failure. A lot of times we fear failure, so we get a really good idea in the unenlightened state and we give up before we even try because we fear to fail. But an enlightened person is not going to have that fear. And then you're going to know how to take responsibility for your own actions. You're going to know how to not harm others through right intention. You're going to know how to have right speech and speak with teams of people and individuals in order to encourage them and do really great things together. You're not going to harm people through your actions. You're going to have great livelihood. You're going to have right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So your mind is going to be functioning optimally. So you will be able to pursue and be successful in anything that it is that you set your mind on as an enlightened being. So it really is preparation for the rest of your life. But if you kind of walk around with a, a bit of arrogance thinking you're so enlightened, you're really not because of the arrogance. But if you just quietly know that you are enlightened and you no longer experience discontentedness and you have this wisdom, then you've essentially just set yourself up for a really great rest of your life. I was wondering, David, if you ever noticed this, and it's this feeling that as we clear out these challenges and as we deal with our attachments, and we start to realize that maybe we don't really have as many problems as we thought we did. <laughs> but there's a part of the mind that seems like it wants a problem. Like if, if it had a problem, then it might feel more significant. It yeah. might have something to do. And not having problems can sometimes feel a bit odd to a mind that's had problems for as long as it can remember. <laughs> what is going on there? I was wondering if that was something you experienced and maybe you can shed some light on that. Yeah, I mean, every unenlightened person, we only have three main problems. Craving, anger, and ignorance. Or greed, hatred, and delusion. And if you want to boil that down, you have ten problems, the ten fetters. Right. So those are the problems and the challenges in the unenlightened mind that create all the other problems in our life because of those three poisons or if you want to drill it down deeper, the 10 fetters. But, yeah, if you're used to going through life and being a problem solver and that's how you kind of identify, that's your image, that's your self-identity, that's part of letting go of that self that if you've envisioned a certain life for yourself and you identify with certain qualities, letting go of that self is letting go of that identity of I'm a problem solver. So yeah, I mean, it can feel like you're giving up a part of your life that you've kind of known to be who you are for so long. And I describe this as a bow tie. I know you've heard me share this before, Max, but I'll share it with everyone else is, in the unenlightened state, you know, you start out life and your life's like wide open. You've got like all these friends. You kind of partake in any kind of activity, whether it's risky or unwholesome or wholesome. Your life is just wide open without any kind of guidance of how you should live your life. 
Well, over time, living that way, you create more and more discontentedness for yourself. Your life becomes more and more difficult based on the unwholesome gamma that's being returned to you. But then over time, you start making decisions to kind of bring that down. You realize, all right, drinking and alcohol and drugs are not good for me. You know, you might kind of bring that down. Okay, um, you know, talking bad to people and you, know, you kind of reduce that a little bit and you start kind of shrinking your friends because people become judgmental or arrogant or egotistical and your life kind of shrinks like this one side of the bow tie coming into the knot and then in that period of your life you hopefully find these teachings and you work on untangling this unenlightened mind and understanding these main problems in the mind and you start resolving them through training of the mind and then as you focus on yourself over many months and years the condition of the mind improves you start learning about these natural laws of existence and you start feeling more and more comfortable to kind of step out into the world the buddha called this part that i'm talking about in the knot he called it seclusion that as we learn and practice these teachings we kind of go into seclusion but then once the mind starts to kind of open up and really awaken into these four stages of enlightenment you'll find yourself kind of expanding back out that other side of the bow tie and what you once knew to be your life whether it's going to parties all the time whether it's drinking using drugs whether it's being a problem solver like you're describing whatever those things were that you did as you come into that period of seclusion that the buddha talks about you will then expand back out and kind of create a whole new life for yourself that was very different than your previous life while you were unenlightened and didn't have the wisdom of these teachings you will make wise choices based on these teachings of who you would like to be friends with, who you would like to be a life partner, how you would like to treat your children or your parents and people around you. You will make different choices about your job. And this is why as the mind's coming into this period of seclusion, life can get kind of turbulent. Oftentimes when people start learning these teachings, and they start practicing these teachings, their life can become very turbulent. It can put a lot of pressure on like a life partner. So like if you're the only one in the relationship who's learning and practicing these teachings and your life partner isn't, your mind's going through all these changes and you're looking at the world completely different and they're not. So that relationship can get very turbulent. Or if you have children and even if they're older children and they've kind of looked at you as a certain way, but now you're changing as part of these teachings, the mind is changing and you look at the world very differently. Well, one of the things that we know is that the unenlightened mind doesn't like change. So if you've got all these people around you who aren't practicing these teachings and you're going through all these changes and making all these significant changes in their life, they're kind of looking at you like, what is wrong with this person? They're meditating. They're not eating meat anymore. They're chanting. They're doing, you know, all of these wholesome activities. Like you would think like people would look at what you're doing and be like, oh, wow, right on. Good, good to go. Like very supportive and encouraging. And there will be some people like that. But 
if you've lived a certain life with certain people that were involved in lots of craving, desire, attachment that are involved in hatred, anger, and ill will, or, you know, delusion, ignorance, and unknowing of true reality, then people can really be looking at you like you're a Martian off of another planet. And that's where, back to one of the questions you asked a couple sessions ago, that's where the community or the Sangha really comes in, is that you've got more and more people around you in a online Sangha or in a real person Sangha that are practicing in the same way as you. Where, like here in Thailand, if I go outside and I'm generous and I'm kind and I'm friendly, like today I gave a big set of books to who I call mom and dad at the post office. I've been going to this little retail post office and there's an older man and an older lady who live there and work there and it's their little retail shop. It's not a real post office, it's like a satellite office. And they've been helping me ship all these books all over the world. So I ordered some extra books for them and I took them in there and I gave to them as an offering. And they were like really appreciative. They were really thankful. Whereas if I did that in America or the UK or Australia or some other country and I took like a big stack of Buddhist books and I gave it to somebody, they'd probably be like, whoa, like what is this guy doing? Like, you know, they would look at me like I was a Martian on, on the earth. But of course, here in Thailand, everybody's into the Buddha. So I knew exactly what to give to these people and show my appreciation and gratitude, even though they're making profit from the books that I'm shipping. I was just like, well, let me just do something extra special for them and share some of the Buddhist teachings in the world. So as you're doing these things in the world, the Sangha becomes more and more important in that you choose to be around people that understand and that appreciate the wholesome activities that you're into. Because if people are looking at you with tension or they're judging you or they're demotivating or disparaging you for meditating, for learning good, wholesome teachings, these people probably aren't very supportive and they're probably part of the reason why your life became so difficult prior to this path. And that might have been part of the environment that you created as part of those decisions of who you surrounded around you. So you've either got to clean that up and help those people learn these teachings so that they will move on this path with you and you guys can be involved in better and better wholesome activities. Or you might have to make decisions to kind of move away from this friend or this life partner or certain family members in your life that are not encouraging, that are Kind of trying to weigh you down because one of the things that happens is if you're part of a group that is into a bunch of unwholesome activities and you try to leave that group and do more wholesome things they will usually try to pull you back in and they will usually try to do that by disparaging you making fun of you mocking you telling you how what you're involved in is so horrible well, you got to see it for what it is that these people are wanting you to be down in the darkness with them. And if you listen to that and you allow those disparaging comments to pull you down and keep you down, then you're never going to transcend and get closer and closer to enlightenment and grow beyond this if you keep allowing that to pull you back down. This is what the Buddha referred to as Mara. Right. Jesus referred to this dark entity as like Satan or the devil. 
Buddha referred to this as Mara, like the darkness of people that are functioning through this clouded, polluted mind that are not uplifting and encouraging. And this is why in his teachings, he says that one of the most important things to do in this practice is to surround yourself with good friends, good companions, and good comrades. So in that Pali canon in English class, if you guys are part of that and you end up getting a set of these books, which is what we use to study in that class, the very first like chapter seven or eight, you're going to see that right at the beginning where he talks about making sure that you select good people to be around you who are into good, wholesome things so that you can have the support you need. And that's essentially the Sangha or even people that are into other traditions, but they're still supportive and motivating for you. That's great. Thanks a lot for that, David. We have a question from Manal. Teacher David, would it going further towards self-awakening make a person go away from their innate survival abilities and instincts? No, uh, I wouldn't think so, because awakening the mind is to function more optimally. So if you're saying survivability is like animal instinctive behaviors, then yes. But if you're just talking about survivability of the human body, then I would say no, because the enlightened mind and someone who's becoming more and more enlightened understands that they need to keep the human body alive. So not only are they using meditation and these teachings to clean up and purify the mind, but as part of that, they understand that this human body is needed and it's important and it's valuable. So they're going to take care of it. So the Buddha even talked about the importance of hygiene and proper nutrition and things like this to ensure that you maintain the health of the physical body. So it depends on what you're thinking there. But if you're thinking about the instinctive animal behaviors, yeah, like as you become more and more enlightened, you will move away from those instinctive animal behaviors of, you know, that we get as part of being born into the world, we come from that animal realm. So we have a lot of instinctive animal behaviors. And this is why as if human was born and left on their own, you know, they would be very animalistic. But through training the mind in these teachings, you become more and more human, functioning with this clarity of mind, concentration, focus, and deep memory and wisdom. So with that said, you would be able to survive and be able to take care of the physical body and all different aspects of your life much better as part of an enlightened mind. Because in the unenlightened mind, we essentially run around fulfilling our cravings. That's what we do. We just go from craving to craving to craving to craving to craving because we're chasing after those pleasant feelings. And we just chase them, chase them, chase them. And we keep craving, craving, craving. And we don't really realize what we do. And we don't just kind of sit back and kind of look at what's really happening. One of the things that the Buddhist teachings do is kind of help you see how your mind's been functioning. And when you learn his teachings and you look back to your life, you're like, oh my goodness. Wow, his teachings explain exactly what I've been experiencing my whole life. And I didn't even realize that my mind was on this never ending quest trying to fulfill all these cravings. 
So those cravings are what's going to motivate all your decisions. The craving, desire, attachment, the hatred, anger, ill will, the delusion, ignorance, unknowing of true reality, that self and that ego is what all the decisions are coming from in the unenlightened state. And by eliminating all of that stuff, then the brilliance and the brightness of the enlightened mind can come through and then you'll function like a human being. We have a question from Barzan. If someone suffers from social phobia, what would be the best technique to overcome this through the Buddhist view? So fears are typically because of anticipation of some event, right? So through fear, one of the best ways to eliminate fear is to confront it. So if somebody has social phobias or like social anxiety, this kind of person definitely needs to learn the teachings, right? They need to get into the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Middle Way, the Five Precepts. They need to have a really well-developed meditation practice. It's all encompassing. It's a comprehensive life practice. But as they build that up, then they need to confront their fears and go out socially and be in social situations to see and learn, train the mind that there's nothing to fear because nothing bad happens. Oftentimes what people ask questions about is stuff like this where they'll say, you know, how do you deal with social phobias or how do you deal with depression or how do you deal with anxiety, right? And it's almost like there's like one individual answer for each one of these things. And the thing that I always explain to people is the Buddhist teachings are, to me, all or, or nothing kind of thing. I mean, there's definitely different stages of enlightenment that you can progress through and decide how far you're going to go as you progress. But it would be impossible to say, okay, you have social phobias, do these three things and your social phobia will be gone. Oh, you have depression? Do these four things and then so that depression will be gone. Oh, you have anxiety? Oh, do these two things and that will be gone. That's not how the Buddhist teachings work. It's a comprehensive approach of learning, starting with that Four Noble Truths, going all the way through. So that's why that book that I wrote, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, it starts with a beginning and then it gradually progresses through your reading, the audiobooks, the video, the podcast, all those quizzes, everything that I've put together in learning, it gradually progresses you through and building up your practice more and more. So whether it's social phobias, anxiety, depression, anger, boredom, loneliness, any of these discontent feelings, which fear or social phobias is one of, all gets remedied by eliminating these three poisons. So there's nothing special to do with a social phobia except for they've got to start just like everyone else. They've got to start with this comprehensive path of developing a life practice, but then with individual fears, these are from craving desire attachments and you've got to confront them. So if you're afraid of going out and being socially engage with people, then you've got to go out in multiple occasions and kind of push yourself. But if you don't already have a well-developed practice underway in order to move the mind and train the mind and all these other teachings, just doing that alone by itself isn't going to necessarily work. But with fears, we've got a chapter on that coming up. It's just 
confronting the fear through going forward. If there's any fear whatsoever that you have in your mind, you have to confront it. You have to put the mind in that situation over multiple experiences and train the mind that nothing is there that's going to harm you. And that's the only way to train the mind to eliminate the fear because it has a fear because it's anticipating something bad's going to happen in any given situation. So you've got to keep putting the mind in that situation and train the mind that nothing bad's going to happen to it. I have a question, David. So there's an idea in modern psychology called the shadow, like the shadow side of ourselves or the shadow function, which is the subconscious often thought of as the darker side of our personality. And I'm interested to know your thoughts on how that idea maps to what we're learning at the moment, this topic of identifying our attachments and what is the subconscious? Is there such a thing? What's your take on that? So in the unenlightened mind, we have these conscious thoughts that we're aware of, that we have mindfulness of, that we have awareness of mind, the conscious thoughts. But then we have these kind of subtle, buried thoughts and emotions that we're not aware of that are there, but they motivate our behaviors and they motivate our intentions, our speech and our actions. And people call that the subconscious. So we have these conscious thoughts that we're aware of, and then there's kind of these buried, repressed thoughts and emotions that we're not aware of, but they still kind of break through and affect our intention, speech, and actions. So this is what we call the conscious and the subconscious of the unenlightened mind. However, as you progress on this path of learning and practicing the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and you train with meditation, as you move into the jhanas, then the mind becomes one, where you're completely aware of all the thoughts, all the ideas in the mind. The Buddha describes this, I believe, as part of the third jhana, if I remember correctly, where the mind becomes one. And you no longer think about a subconscious because you're fully aware. You've developed on this Eightfold Path so well through training the mind you have so much mindfulness that mental discipline of right effort right mindfulness right concentration has been so well developed and you've got such mental discipline that now the mind moves into these jhanas and by the time you get to the third jhana you develop this oneness of mind and there's no longer this conscious thoughts and these subconscious thoughts but the mind is just one and by this time, you've cleared out a lot of the unwholesomeness. So any kind of darkness that's in the mind is pretty much been transcended, but you've still got a lot of work to do. The difference between an unenlightened mind and an unenlightened mind in the jhanas is almost like night and day. When you arrive into the jhanas, the mind becomes very, very different. It's still unenlightened but it's very different than it was before in your life. Oftentimes people, when they reach the jhanas, they think they're actually enlightened and they actually, their progress stalls. And people even tell others that they're enlightened when they've reached the jhanas. And they'll go around and talk to people. And that's one of the ways you know they're not enlightened because they're telling everyone that they are enlightened. But that experience of going from the unenlightened mind who's just 
either completely unaware and unenlightened or unenlightened and just kind of starting out on this path and starting to make progress versus that mind that now arrives in the jhanas, it becomes so different and so unique that you can still regress from there because these jhanas aren't permanent. The jhanas are temporary. You can still regress and fall back from the jhanas. But once you move into that first stage of enlightenment, from that point, you're going to attain enlightenment either in this life or some subsequent life. So the goal that a lot of people have is just to get to the first stage of enlightenment, because if they get there, then they're assured that either in this life or some subsequent life, they will attain enlightenment. But even getting to the jhanas, you've seen so much improvement and you've gotten rid of that darkness or that shadow that you're talking about. You've gotten rid of it so much that you almost wouldn't give up because the mind has experienced so much improvement moving through those jhanas. You know, I don't know of anybody that's attained the jhanas and has given up because it's not like night and day, but I could see someone potentially kind of falling back on their practice. This is my thought about bipolar, depression, schizophrenia, psychotic episodes is my thought is that people who start having psychotic episodes their mind is actually awakening and they experience a bit of these jhanas without even realizing it because they don't have training in it because you can actually kind of like start moving into the jhanas just by being like a really good person you don't even know anything about the buddhist teachings but you're practicing kind of like speaking well being polite being respectful not harming others you know really practicing this and people's minds can kind of like start to unravel and untangle and start to experience a little bit of these jhanas and they can start tapping into communication from these other realms, the lower three realms or the heavenly realm. And this is why people who are having psychotic episodes or manic or depressive episodes and bipolar, what we call bipolar, they oftentimes will have religious connotations as part of the episode or part of the psychotic break was what they say. But what that really is, is somebody's mind untangling without proper training and proper guidance to understand how to move this mind towards awakening and enlightenment in a real gradual kind of almost controlled way that it's like it's almost like the springs bouncing out of a can that you open up the can and the springs kind of bounce out. So there's people that experience letting go of this shadow that you're talking about without even realizing that's what they're doing and their mind starts unraveling. But the wise choice would be to get under training with a guidance of a teacher so that you can gradually move this mind in the direction of enlightenment. The mind will be much more stable because you have a comprehensive, dedicated, consistent practice of moving the mind in that direction. Because if you don't have training in the cycle of rebirth, if you don't have training in knowing the five realms, if you don't have training and meditation and knowing how to stabilize the mind and understanding that you're causing your own discontentedness, if you're just kind of like the average Joe out on the street and you start getting communication from spirits that are in the afflicted spirit realm 
or you start getting communication from beings in the heavenly realm, whoa, your mind can unravel pretty quick and you think like, whoa, like that's where the psychotic tendencies come from because the person doesn't know what's going on. They've never been trained how to control their mind and it's become very unstable. So we're going to talk about mental illness when we get to chapter 22, I believe it is. And uh, you guys will learn about how mental illness is really just a misunderstanding of how the mind works. And there's a lot of people out there on medications that can actually completely liberate themselves from what they consider to be symptoms of mental illness and medication. They can completely liberate themselves from that if they get their mind under training in these teachings. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think one key difference between this idea of the shadow now and what the Buddha's saying is that we don't merely look at the shadow, see it, see the subconscious, make it conscious, and leave it there. That's just the start. Once we identify our attachments, that's when we have to really work on them to eliminate them. Mm-hmm. And there's this other idea that maybe we, we need a bit of rascality, you know, a bit of salt in the stew, as it were. Otherwise, we're not really human. Right. And I think this is maybe not considering impermanence because we're not fixed and the world isn't any fixed way. But um, interested to know your thoughts on that idea that maybe we need to retain a little bit of this um, mis- mischievousness or just something so that we can defend ourselves in this harsh world. No, there's nothing unwholesome that we need to hold on to. We can completely move into this enlightened mental state and function much better than we ever functioned before. But yeah, you know, you're struggling in the unenlightened mental state and there's more struggles and challenges to go from that unenlightened mental state to the enlightened mental state because it's so different than what you've experienced before. You know, if you're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, you've been doing things a certain way your whole life and you're trying to circumvent and revert all of those unwholesome tendencies that you've grown up with, that you've only ever known these things as part of your life. So now to train the mind to speak with right speech is really challenging, or to train the mind to meditate regularly and catch yourself when you feel that craving coming on. A lot of these things that the Buddha taught, it's, it's very challenging when we are the first in our culture to bring this in. We didn't learn this as children. Here in Thailand, the children grow up with it, so it's very comfortable for them because as a child, there's very little craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, so it's very easy to kind of sort that out, and they tend to be able to learn more quickly and more readily and adapt their behavior pretty readily. But for a 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old person, it's much more challenging for us, but we can do it. And... One of the things that can happen is if you're 30, 40, 50 years old and you start learning the Buddhist teachings and you start learning about craving anger and ignorance and the Eightfold Path, right view all the way through right concentration, you can learn about these good, wholesome teachings and start looking back at your close, immediate life, your recent life, and you can start feeling really guilty and really shameful and judgmental of yourself where you might have been talking to your kids a certain way, you might have been talking to your life partner a certain way, you might have been involved in certain unwholesome activities in the recent past, and now for one reason or another, you've landed into deciding to learn and practice the Buddhist teachings, and the more you learn about the Buddhist teachings and you see 
how impactful they are, how true they are, and how utterly unaware you were about all the decisions in your life prior to learning the Buddhist teachings, there can be a lot of guilt and shame that comes in. Deborah was talking about this on Sunday, how she recently became aware of how milk is produced, about how cows are impregnated, and as soon as they give birth, they basically rip the the calf away from the mom and kill it oftentimes just to keep the milk flowing in the mom. They just keep impregnating the cow over and over and over and over again, and there's just destruction in the whole milk industry to produce cow's milk. And once she discovered this, she described on Sunday how there's you know some guilt and maybe some shame there. And that's just about making a decision to drink milk. But these kind of feelings can come up because you realize just how utterly unaware, just utterly how unknowing of true reality. And if we wanna use that word ignorance, just how ignorant we were in the unenlightened state prior to ever being on this path. And if you allow your mind to go there and look at the past, that's where the guilt and shame comes in. And that's why part of this training is bringing the mind to the present moment and residing in the present moment, allowing the past to be the past. And even though you are unaware of true reality, then what you're doing now is cleaning up your practice that you don't have to feel guilty and shameful for the things that you didn't know in the past. But there's oftentimes a few weeks or a few months where people feel awfully guilty and even tear and sob and become very emotional about looking back at how harmful they were, not realizing how horrible of a person you might have really been, or at least how horrible of a decisions that you made. It's just because you were unaware. And once you observe that, what I suggest is rather than feel guilty or shameful, use that as motivation and encouragement to now really solidify your practice in a real comprehensive way and become dedicated to it and committed to it so that you can improve your practice and make a better future for yourself as you progress through life moment to moment to moment. Because looking back and feeling guilty for all those previous decisions aren't going to help you because you can't go back and change those decisions. All you can do is change the decisions that you're making right now. That's the best you can do. So learning this wisdom and understanding the teachings of the Buddha, making better and better decisions right now, that's the best you can do. And that's going to improve your life for each moment going forward. Okay, thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so let's practice Buddhist chanting, okay? I've been teaching Buddhist chanting for many, many years, but in this program, you know, we've been doing it every three weeks. And I would like to invite people who are in our Zoom virtual classroom to get some coaching today because we did that several weeks ago, but we haven't done it since then. So I would like to invite you guys to participate in getting some coaching here. And the chants that we've been doing are the three that I've been sharing, which are the triple gem or the triple jewel, which starts with the Arahang Sama Samputasa, the Natmo Tasa, and the Itipiso. These are the three most common chants that you will find in a Theravada 
Buddhist temple or tradition of chanting. We do these chants for various reasons, and I covered these reasons in our last Buddhist chanting session. So if you haven't learned these yet, the benefits of chanting, look back to the podcast or the YouTube video from three weeks ago where I discussed the benefits of chanting. I went through these in a lot of detail to help you understand why you would be interested to actually chant in the Pali tradition. And then in other podcasts or other videos, I taught how to actually do the chanting. So today what I would like to do is invite students who have been practicing over the recent weeks and months to get some coaching and some guidance and for you to practice a bit here. So is there anyone in our group, in our community, who would like to learn a little bit of the chanting through getting some coaching? Just chanting in Zoom and allowing us to hear your beautiful chanting, and then I'll give you some coaching as part of that. Perhaps I'll just leave it a few moments to see if anyone raises their hand in Zoom or makes a comment. One who would like to go first, I can, I can volunteer. James has to keep his voice down today because of uh, his, his wife's teaching a virtual class in the next room. Oh, okay. So, well, Max, maybe you can leave that on your screen for a moment. I'll do the chanting first. Maybe people would like okay. someone to break the ice. So I'll kind of break the ice here and I'll do this first chant so you guys can hear it. Okay. So here's how the chant goes. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakava Potang Mahakavanhang Apivate Ami Savakato Mahakavata Tammo Damang Namasami Supatipano Mahakavato Savaka Sangho Sanghang Namami Okay, so if we were in a single room together with like a retreat or at a temple or something like this, we could all be chanting together and really harmonize and kind of come together as a community. But here with online training, the best that I can do is kind of give you guys an opportunity to each chant individually, and then I can kind of provide you a little bit of coaching. And if you're feeling a little bit shy about doing that, then try to set that aside because part of attaining enlightenment is to train the mind to not be shy. If there's shyness there, that's discontentedness. You've got to get to the point where you don't judge other people, so therefore you're not fearful of other people judging you. And the only way to get through that is to break through the wall. I used to be a very shy person at one time as well. I used to be very, very shy. And the only way to get through that is just to break through the wall. And if you either haven't practiced these chants at all or you've only practiced them a little bit, it's okay. Come online, 
come into Zoom and try to practice and try to break through that wall a little bit. And you'll see that it won't hurt you. You won't die, that no one's judging you. And you can work through that shyness a little bit. That's what we mean when we say practicing the teachings is you've got to get to the point where you're applying right effort, where you're abandoning unwholesome qualities and you're arising wholesome qualities. You have to feel comfortable to step forward in life and have confidence and set aside shyness. I've actually been places before where Thai people were speaking Thai and there might have been a room of like three or four or 500 people and they pass around a microphone and the different people will say what their personal struggles are and then the teacher who's there will provide guidance in the Buddhist teachings to help them in life. And I've seen women and men stand up and talk about some of the most intimate things of their life in a room of three, four, five hundred people. I've seen women stand up and talk about husbands that are cheating on them. I've seen women or men stand up and talk about sexual abuse or verbal abuse or physical abuse or problems that they're having with their children, right? One of the things that we have in our culture is we kind of want our children to be looked at as perfect little human beings, because if they're perfect, that means we're perfect and we've raised them to be so perfect. But in Thailand, people understand like, hey, this life of learning the Buddhist teachings is all about we are imperfect human beings and it's the Buddhist teachings that are going to help us to become more and more perfect because he was the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. So what I observed in Thai society and in Thai culture is that people will feel very comfortable standing up in front of hundreds of people and telling some of their very intimate, close things that are going wrong in their life in order to get help. Because if you just hold on to the shyness and you never let that go, then you're never going to get through it and you're never going to get to enlightenment because you still are holding on to the shyness. So today might not be the right day for you to do that, but something for you to think about is learning how to let go of the shyness and being concerned or worried, being worried about what other people might think because you've got to let go of that feeling of being judged and being concerned about what other people think about you or being worried about what other people think. Because in a Dhamma community, people know that you are not perfect. That's the whole reason why you're learning the Buddhist teachings. So with that said, I'll turn it over to you, Max. Okay, let's give it a go. See if there's been any improvement. Sahawaka Sahanko 
Sankanamami. Very nice, Max. Wonderful, wonderful. That was so much different than what you've been doing each time. This is probably the third or fourth time that we've done this online mm-hmm. coaching. And you've got everything right there. I mean, I don't want to say perfect because then you'll stop trying to improve. But yeah, that was really good, Max. Really, 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 really wonderful. I notice, of course, like every time I chant, it's different. Sure, impermanence, right? And I even sometimes (laughs) when I notice, uh, like you say, the start of meditation versus the end of meditation, there can be significant difference, even in those 30 minutes or however long it is. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's always different, but I'm glad to know that there's been improvements. Yeah, I remember the very, very, very first time I gave you coaching, you were a bit apprehensive, you were kind of holding your breath, you weren't very confident. And each time that we've done this now, this is the third or fourth time, you've just improved with the feedback that you've gotten. And now, no big deal, you were able to chant. So that's outstanding, so really wonderful. And I know James has been improving too. If it wasn't for his wife teaching an online class, I'm sure he would be volunteering to chant as well. So who else would like to chant? Let's get some new people to chant. Even if you guys haven't been practicing this, Max can put the slides back on the screen and uh, we can get somebody that would like to just break through that shyness and do a little bit of chanting. Who would like to chant? No takers, huh? Okay. Well, if there's no takers, then let's go to the next chant, Max. I guess it's just you and me chanting today. All right. So the next chant is the Namotasa. So here's how the Namotasa goes. Namotasa bhagavato harahato samputasa. Napmodhasa Pakawato Arahato Sama Samputasa Napmodhasa Pakawato Arahato Sama Samputasa Okay, Max, your turn. Okay. Namo tasa pakawato Arahato sama samputasa Namo tasa pakawato Arahato sama samputasa Namo tasa pakawato Arahato samasamputasa Very nice, Max. Very nice. Only thing that I would comment on both of these is just push a little bit more like Namo Like really push out the air. Like really get it projecting. There we go. Just really okay. project it. The tone, the breathing, everything. You've got it memorized. I think you just maybe need to project a little bit more with some confidence. So okay. that's wonderful. All right, let's Thank go you. to the ETP. So here we go. 
ಇಸೋ like revving you up like an old car right <laughs> crank up max give my voice a workout it be so bakawa arahang samasambuto we cha cha nang sampuno ಸಕಾಹಿ I think you're like a can be encouraging and motivating for everyone. I see Judith clapping for you too. I think uh, uh people can see the potential that you've obviously been practicing. I don't know when you started chanting whether it was in this program I think because I didn't teach you when you were here in Chiang Mai. So We did we did one or two sessions in Chiang Mai. Did we? And it was only it wasn't just chanting but when we did meditation you handed out the laminated chants at the time but that wasn't when i began practicing and you know it is tricky it does does take a bit of time because a lot of the syllables they're not sounds we're used to making so there's lots of things to consider pacing projection the whole holding the tone so you know it is it is challenging so i would say what you have accomplished that was like in the last 6 months right the last 6 yeah. to 8 months So that's yeah. that's outstanding because it took me many years to learn these. It took me many years. I didn't have anybody teaching me or guiding me, so you have some guidance <laughs> here, but it really sh- yeah. but it really shows dedication and commitment on your part to actually be practicing this on a regular basis. So that's the potential of what people can do if they really dedicate to it. And you know, the purpose of chanting isn't to come into class and chant for everybody that's not why we're doing chanting if people look at the previous class that i taught 3 weeks ago about the benefits of chanting what max now has is he now has a practice that is benefiting him in terms of easing his mind into meditation he now has the ability to use this chanting there's no mystical magical power with chanting or mantras there's nothing that he's able to invoke to create any 
beneficial outcomes through his chanting, but through dedicating time and effort to this chanting, he now has developed memory, he's developed concentration, he's developed some clarity of thought, and he's now able to use this to kind of ease the mind into meditation and ease it out of meditation, along with all those other benefits that we talked about three weeks ago. And it's only going to get better and better as you do this more and more. It's just going to get more and more refined. And you can join any temple anywhere in the world that's practicing the Theravada teachings and chanting in Pali. You'd be able to go to Sri Lanka, to Vietnam, to America, to South America, to Australia, any of these places that do Theravada Buddhist chanting. And you'd be able to sit right down and chant right along with people you've never met before. And that's one of the beauties of chanting in Pali is that it really creates a nice sense of community. So that's really wonderful that you've developed that over the last six to eight months, Max. And now you've got some real benefit for yourself with training the mind through chanting. Yes. Thank you for your help, David. Yeah, I certainly noticed the benefits chanting before and after meditation for sure. Um, so yeah, nice. Certainly helped with that. You want to share what some of those benefits are so that the other students can hear those? Yeah, so on the way in, I find it really just helps sink the mind in. And even though it might take two or three minutes to complete the chance, I find it actually a more useful two or three minutes versus if I just sat down and began meditating. Because if you just sit down and begin meditating, if the mind is already somewhat busy, it can be a bit of a step to go from that down to concentration during meditation. So the chanting provides a stepping stone in a way between the daily life and, and deep meditation. And then on the way out, what's quite interesting is that I find that knowing that I'm going to have that step out of meditation allows the meditation to go a bit deeper as well. Whereas if I know that I'm about to just get up and start walking around, the mind almost anticipates that. And it, it's like it, it won't allow itself to go into a deep meditation. So I also find that knowing that there's this chant at the end of the meditation improves the quality of the meditation before it. So yeah, both, both at the front and the back end of meditation, I find it a, a good technique for getting the most out of the meditation. So you feel more comfortable to let go and really deepen your meditation. Yeah, another interesting thing as well is that at the end of the meditation, it serves as a kind of barometer of how the mind is at the time and on the way in, I would say. But if meditation has been very helpful and then you chant at the end, it seems to provide the mind with a bit of feedback. If the voice comes out naturally quite easy and soft, then is a sign that you've had a good productive meditation. Mm -hmm. And seeing that difference between the chant on the way in and the way out is a good indicator, as you often remind us, David, of how the mind might have changed during meditation. Mm -hmm. Because during meditation, sure, we're experiencing benefits, but it's sometimes not until we actually then leave the meditation and start going around our daily life that we start to notice, oh, I'm behaving differently, or I'm, I'm taking more care, or I'm making better decisions. And, and so it's another way to help reflect on the benefits that we're experiencing during meditation. Okay. What's some of the advice that you would give to students who are either just starting out or has maybe been learning for three to six months? 
what some advice either for meditation or some of the struggles you've encountered along the path that you feel like could be helpful for them? I think the number one tip would be to just really dedicate time to meditation every day. I think if you're not yet 100% convinced that meditation is an excellent use of time, then just hang in there and make it a habit. I'm sure that at some point when you see how beneficial it is, it will become a lot easier for you to then just continue carving out time for every every day. And then your practice will be heading in a really healthy direction. So just dedicate time to it every day. You know, it can feel at first a bit odd to sit down and kind of not do a lot, right? When we're so used to running around much of the time, it can feel like we're not being productive enough. But if you do it enough, you'll start to see that I think it is actually, in some ways, the most useful, productive thing you can do. And so for me, that was at least quite a uh, stumbling block when I first started meditating. It was like, is, is this really a, you know, a valuable use of my time? Should I not be doing something more productive? But I think once you get over that hump, it's often to a really good uh, um, direction. So yeah, that would be my, my first tip. You also had a question about challenges. Yeah, like what kind of challenges and struggles have you encountered? But before you answer that question, how many times a day do you meditate and about how long do you meditate for? So at the moment, I'm usually meditating three times a day. First thing upon waking up around noon, usually before lunch, so I'm not meditating with a massive meal in my stomach. And then right before bed. So it's the last thing I do before I get into bed. You know, I don't meditate and then get up and you know brush my teeth. I, I will make it the very last thing. Duration really varies. I'd say it's usually around 30 or 40 minutes per meditation. I've had to build up to that. Don't get me wrong, it's taken a few years actually to build up to that point. Not just the f- frequency, but also the length of each meditation. It can be physically quite challenging to sit for that long, but you do get used to it. I've also configured my life now where that's actually possible. Whereas if I was working an office job like the one I used to work, I wouldn't be able to do it three times a day. I'd probably have to settle for two with maybe the occasional moment here or there at work. But that's a choice I made to, to move my lifestyle that direction. So there may be other changes you have to make in daily life if you're interested in you know meditating three times a day. I found this to be most beneficial for me because after a good meditation you can experience benefits for several hours and not a lot can go wrong you know between morning and lunchtime or lunchtime in the evening so for me it's like putting up guardrails it just means that there's much less likely going to be any moments where uh, i make a decision i wouldn't have made had i been completely you know focused in on what it was i was doing and meditating three times a day seems to be a pretty effective way to make sure I don't really have many of those moments now, which is very positive. Good, good. So you're noticing a decline in your discontentedness? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, compared to how it used to be, it's just night and day. And, uh, you know, one of the most stark benefits for me was realizing that even pursuing the pleasant things was a form of discontentedness. And we often don't notice that when we first start out on this path. We think that pleasant is good and unpleasant is bad. And actually what we don't necessarily see is that pursuing the pleasant and running after things is not only causing challenges and leading to the painful experiences, but it is in itself a form of discontentedness. It's actually not that comfortable to be pursuing things all the time. And sometimes even 
getting them is uncomfortable because we're concerned about when it's going to come to an end or what the results of it might be. So noticing not just a reduction in the painful feelings, but also that I'm not craving excitement like I was you know, a couple of years ago, three years ago. And that's actually quite a relief, I have to say. <laughs> like I don't have to be chasing this you know, high state all the time. And it's just a wonderful thing to not feel like you have to go out of your way to be always trying to make things more pleasant or better in some way. So, yeah, it's uh, very glad to have um, encountered these teachings and be here a couple of years later. Still experiencing benefits, still um, experiencing more benefits than what goes on. So, yeah, good decision, I think. So what were some of the struggles and challenges along the way? There's been many. <laughs> Various things I've given up. Every time you release an attachment, there's going to be some discontentedness associated with that. And this can happen in the most subtle of ways. So, for example, I've been reducing my caffeine intake and going from drinking three coffees a day to two coffees a day doesn't sound like much, but actually just that very slight detachment can feel pretty agonizing you know if you're really really hooked on caffeine a slight change can be really tough and even going down from say three cups of tea to two cups of tea now, I use these trivial examples because they don't sound like it would be that difficult but I've noticed that even a small change like that can be quite challenging and that's not to mention some of the larger things like I've completely given up eating meat I've had to give up uh, certain other things that I used to really enjoy, but I know that they were bringing a lot of challenges with them as well. For example, you know, going out to nightclubs, I used to do that quite a bit and just not interested in that now because I wasn't seeing at the time, like, yeah, there's a lot of fun and pleasant feelings associated with that. And I wasn't making the link that all these other painful things I was experiencing the next day over the coming days and actually into the future indefinitely from the unwholesome decisions I was making whilst I was out, the unwholesome decisions I was making in my business in the following week because my mind wasn't focused. I wasn't seeing that that was a direct consequence of the attachment to this lifestyle and all the things I was doing. And so as much as I used to enjoy that and it's hard to put something like that in the past, and say, I'm actually never going to do that again. And it doesn't even feel hard to say that now, but to, to move from that to never doing it and never even having the slightest temptations to do it, that's a lot of work in between. It's a gradual process. And there's going to be potentially rough days during that. It's like a hangover. It's not a hangover that you, you know, like you, you don't necessarily have a headache like you've been drinking the night before. But there will be other painful things. There might be feelings of loneliness, feelings of anxiety. And when you're just cloud of confusion and attachment, you don't necessarily see what is causing what painful feeling. But as you start to clear them out, you can start to see like, quite clearly when you experience discontentedness, what it was that caused it. And therefore, what it is you need to work on to make sure that you never have to experience that discontentedness ever again. Because when you do see the discontentedness and you identify the attachment if you deal with it properly you don't ever need to feel that ever again and so once you see that process unfolding i think this whole path gets off to a, a bit of a roll and starts to get easier you know it's going to be challenging you know it's going to be hard work but you can see the direction 
and you're enjoying the benefits and you're even actually taking a kind of joy in the process of identifying and releasing attachments. So it's like, okay, yeah, I know I'm, I'm finding this a bit of a rough day, but I know that it's impermanent. And I know that, you know, tomorrow's another day and this is it. I'm never gonna have to go through this again. So there's been a lot of things that I've given up. I've mentioned a few there and I'm sure if I went away and thought about it, there'd be many, many, many more to relay, but uh, that's what comes to mind. Do you have any aha moments or big realizations that really shifted things for you where it changed your perspective and really kind of propelled you on this path more so than maybe something else kind of smaller? Were there any like big aha? Oh, that's what the Buddha was talking about. And now you got it and it really propelled your practice. Yes, so I, I remember one time about a year and a half ago, just short of a year and a half ago, and I've been going through some very difficult times in my business. And I have a business that I, I sell products online and for about 12 days, my business was completely down and it was mostly outside of my control. And I, I didn't know when or if it was going to be reactivated and so it was a really hard 12 days because i was very attached to my business and also the income from the business and i need that to survive but I, I was actually out in asia at the time so i didn't really know what i was going to do so yeah that was very painful but as soon as that was resolved and things became clear again that's when it was just i think because that was one of my, one of my biggest attachments and i'd gone through these 12 days and kind of come to terms with the fact that it wasn't permanent there was a moment where it was just like there are just no problems I, I there are absolutely no problems I, I, okay there's still attachment i need to work on but i know that i can see how this path can lead to a place where i truly won't have to experience any discontentness and i think it took something quite stark like that to really drive that home for me so that was that was one I think also one of the big aha moments was shortly after I met you for the first time, Dave, and you gave a Four Noble Truths talk. And then I went away and reflected on that. And then I came back and we went first to Putin in Chiang Mai and talked it through. Talked about how it's really about taking responsibility for one's own mind and that our own mind is all we're responsible for. And not only that, but our mind is the only one we're responsible for. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no one else is. So. We're only responsible for our mind, and we're only responsible for our mind, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That was definitely a bit of an aha moment, because from then on, no longer does one want to point the finger at someone else. And if I'm experiencing these discontented feelings, then I must be causing it somehow. So what am I going to do, get angry at myself? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, try that, it's not going to help much. Well, I'm not going to get angry at myself, hopefully, so why would I get angry at someone else? And so this is very powerful because we're always looking for what we're doing that is causing our own discontent mind. And at the same time, we become very, very forgiving of other people because we know that nothing they do can actually cause our discontent mind. They may do things that we don't agree with. They may do things that shine a light on our attachments, but nothing they do can actually make you feel something. They can't make you angry. They can't make you feel bored or lonely or anxious. So that is a complete shift in the way one's mind works. And it's very empowering and liberating. All we have to do is look after our own mind. Mm -hmm. That means 
I'm in complete control of the experience I'm having. And every experience that I do have is the result of my decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the most powerful liberation you can think of because it completely puts it in your own hands. Nothing anyone else ever does needs to actually bother me. Okay, it will bother me until I get to a point where you know, I release some attachments, but until then, it's going to be helpful to me because it will show me where the mind is still attached. So that was definitely a, a big aha moment because that is just really setting the scene for the whole path. That is really the, the foundation on which everything else is built. Yep, for sure. Wise words. Does anyone in Zoom have a question for Max? <laughs> Does anyone on Facebook or YouTube would like to send a question into our moderator, Max, so Max can answer his question? <laughs> I think this is great. I've kind of turned the tables here. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting this, but then again, I wasn't expecting anything, so. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have any questions for Max in Facebook or YouTube or anybody in Zoom have a question for Max? You see any questions there, Max? Nice comment from Manal. Thank you for that. Max, we have no more questions. <laughs> it appears we have no more questions at this time. Yeah, there we go. It, we, it appears we have no more questions <laughs> at this time. See, I haven't been trained to be a good moderator yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll pick it up quickly. It's not too hard. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing, Max. I know that I didn't tell you that I was going to do that, but uh, that's good. You, you feel comfortable sharing, and obviously you've made some progress there. So that's uh, very good. A testament to your dedication and commitment to learning and practicing. So, Thank you very much. And, yeah, thanks for your help, David. Your teaching has been invaluable. So, yeah, yeah really appreciate it. Yeah, pleased to help you and pleased to help everyone else. So we will move on in our program on Sunday. On Sunday, we're going to be covering chapter 13, which is cultivating healthy mental states of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are the four Brahma Viharas. And these four Brahma Viharas are teachings that kind of hang to the outside of the Eightfold Path but they're part of this path to enlightenment. You wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without these four Brahma Viharas. And they address specific problems in the mind, which we're going to talk about and talk about how to cultivate these four Brahma Viharas. So on Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time, we'll be covering those. And then next Wednesday, we will be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. And what I'm doing here, if you guys haven't noticed, is those breathing mindfulness meditations are getting longer and longer and longer because now the community has been together for longer and we've been meditating together as a community for longer. So we're getting these longer meditation periods in each one of our sits. So it's really nice to see that you guys are developing further and further. So depending on where you are in your meditation practice, I really would like to encourage you to move it. If you're not really getting once a day yet, you've got to move that to at least once a day, right? And if you're getting once a day, really work to move that to twice a day. And if you're getting twice a day, look to try to move that to three times a day because that's what will produce the most benefits for you. And Max is doing this exactly the way that the Buddha would prescribe and that I would prescribe, which is as soon as you wake up in the morning, 
you know, go empty the organs, use the bathroom and meditate right away. And then if you're going to meditate in the middle of the day, do that before lunch or do that at some point after lunch has digested. Because if you got a big stomach full of food, you're going to have a hard time actually training the mind. And then right before you go to bed, meditate at that point. So if you're doing meditation in this way, essentially you're meditating at night before you go to bed, kind of slipping into a really nice high quality sleep, and then you're slipping right out of bed into meditation again. So in that period of time, you've really given your mind a real good benefit, a real leg up in this world of ensuring that you're meditating in a consistent schedule. And if that's all you did was morning and evening, you know, that's a really great schedule. But if you can get and build up to that middle of the day session, that's going to be really helpful as well. And your decisions benefit you. So as you increment your meditation practice and you bring it further and further and closer and closer to the once or twice or three times a day, that's your gamma. As a result of your decisions to improve your meditation practice, the result is that you're going to get more benefit and you're going to see more benefit to the condition of the mind. And I would say that if you're only doing once a day now, you absolutely need to at least get to twice a day. You should be able to get to twice a day, morning and evening, for sure. And like I mentioned, if you can get to that third time, you'll find even more benefits there. So continue to work on your meditation practice, continue to build that. And we're going to continue to teach the teachings from the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And then starting in January, we'll start moving into the Pali Canon. We'll have these two programs running side by side where we'll have Sunday and Wednesday, the group learning program going on. And then on Saturday, we'll have the Pali Canon and English program going on. So there'll be a way to continue to evolve your practice more and more. So I would just with that like to suggest to you guys, if you would like to try the Pali chanting, continue to do that. If we're finding that Pali chanting is not something that this particular group is really interested in, then we can just be rotating between breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And we can be doing that every single Wednesday, you know, just kind of rotating one do breathing mindfulness and one do loving kindness. So maybe I'll take a poll on that in our Facebook group and see what you guys think if we should just leave poly chanting off because if you guys aren't going to be interested to practice it, then maybe it's something you guys don't see as important for your practice, which is fine because you can attain enlightenment without learning poly chanting, but you absolutely need to learn the breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And maybe perhaps what you'd rather do is maybe we should do the non-self meditation as well as part of that schedule. So I'll think of some questions and do a poll in Facebook and see where you guys end up with that. So are there any remaining questions that you guys have about your practice, either meditation or any of the teachings that you've been learning so far? Just give those a moment to see if there are any questions. Nothing for me, David. So it appears we have no more questions this time. Okay, we've extinguished our questions. 
So I will just wish you guys a really wonderful day, and we'll see you on Sunday at 9 o'clock and then Wednesday on 9 o'clock as well. So thank you all for joining. Continue to learn. You've got another short chapter in Chapter 13. I think it's only two pages long. So read that. Use the audiobook. Use the videos. Use the podcast and explore some of these podcasts from last group learning program from six months ago. So if there's been a chapter that maybe you didn't feel like you quite learned as deeply or it didn't quite connect with you, now that this chapter is fairly short and next week's chapter is fairly short, this is a time for you to go back to whether it's the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or some of the other chapters, maybe the Natural Law of Gamma, or scheduling some private sessions with me to spend some time having a personal discussion. Use this time wisely. Even though the chapters are short, you're not reading as much, maybe the material's not as heavy as some of the other chapters. Use this time to deepen your meditation practice, to deepen your understanding of some of the other teachings. Spend some time privately with me talking through video, go through some of the quizzes from the previous chapters, go through some of the podcasts from some of the previous chapters and use this time to continue to evolve and continue to investigate the teachings. So until next time, have a wonderful, wonderful day. Take care. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.